If you take the biggest allocation of federal funds for education, two well-meaning and curious educators, and one expert, what have you got? Well, you've got this episode of Your EdTech Questions. Hi, I'm Amal Gignes. And I'm Zach Chase. And this is Your EdTech Questions. Amal, are you ready for another one? I am so ready. I'm actually really excited about it. Okay, so here's the question. What is ESSA and why should teachers care? This is so awesome because these are such huge questions and so often this feels way above the classroom level, but I think it really makes an impact. So that does that mean that you know what ESSA is? I mean, I think we should talk to someone a little bit smarter than us. You don't have any guesses? I'm, Give me a guess. I mean, I mean... Is that a no? That was a no. Okay. Um, so... At the district level, I know a little bit about ESSA, right? So I, I know that Title II is where federal professional learning funds come from. I know that there's something called Title IV. I know that ISTE has a new thing about Title IV that maybe I haven't read yet. I was trying to think of what ESSA stood for, and I couldn't remember. And all I remembered was that it is what replaced No Child Left Behind. But so often these big policy moves feel really above my head because I'm just here in my classroom and all these big things are happening upstairs. And um, I, you know, I'm curious about what is my role in all of this. So luckily we have a friend who's a little bit smarter than we are. Thankfully. Hey, Amal. Hey, Zach. Guess what? What? This episode of Your EdTech Questions is brought to listeners by ISTE membership. Tell me more. Well, ISTE members can take advantage of the newest member perk. They can plan engaging lessons with Discovery Education's STEM Connect platform. Members get free access through June of 2019. Ooh, tell me where I can access this. <laughs> Surprising you asked. You can learn about this perk and all the other ones available at ISTE.org slash membership. Nailed it. super excited to have with us today Anne Hyslip, the Assistant Director of Policy Development and Government Relations at the Alliance for Excellent Education. Hi, Anne. Hi, Amal. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for taking time today to be with us and help us answer our ed tech questions. We've got some good ones for you, I think. Great. We're hoping you can help us see some connections. And Zach couldn't be here with us today, but he and I were thinking that it would be really helpful if you could maybe give us some context, because I think maybe people might not know what ESSA is. Could you give us a quick primer? Sure. So the Every Student Succeeds Act is the nation's biggest K-12 education law. It was passed in December 2015 and replaced the No Child Left Behind Act. The original version of the law was actually passed in 1965, so it goes back to you know, Lyndon Johnson and the war on poverty and was part of really a whole civil rights package. At its heart, ESSA and the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, the original title for the law, is really a civil rights law. It was passed to ensure that we were addressing as a nation huge inequities and disparities, particularly for low-income students and other vulnerable populations. So ESSA includes a ton of different programs um, for states and then for school districts to um, get additional money from the federal government to support vulnerable student populations. 
the biggest program in ESSA is the Title I program, which probably a lot of teachers and others tuning in have heard of. That's over $15 billion every year that goes to districts with high concentrations of poor students to help them close achievement gaps and you know, reach grade level standards and to make sure that those students are going to be prepared to succeed beyond K-12 education. But there are other programs within ESSA that are a little bit smaller, but still significant. You know, we're talking billions of dollars again. I'm glad you're bringing that up, actually. The next thing I was going to ask you about was, you know, as a teacher myself, this is something that often feels really over my head, but I know there are lots of title programs. I was going to ask you to explain some that stand out to you. Sure. Yeah. Title I is by far the biggest, but some of the other big programs in ESSA are the Title II program. This is absolutely relevant to teachers and school leaders because it is over $2 billion that goes directly to states and districts to support professional development, teacher preparation, teacher retention and recruitment. All of that is part of the Title II program. And this is a big formula program that pretty much every state and district in the country gets. There's also the Title III program. That's the Title III formula is specifically to English learners. So like Title I is focused predominantly on low-income students, Title III focuses on English learners and their unique needs. And then relevant, I think, in particular to our conversation today is a new program, a new formula in ESSA that is called Title IV Part A. And the wonky name it has is Student Support and Academic Enrichment Grants. And This is a new program in ESSA that took a lot of different smaller pots of money under No Child Left Behind and combined them into a bigger and more flexible pot of funds that districts can access to focus on three big priorities that all I think are relevant to teachers and to the quality of instruction and school conditions for learning that are in schools today. One is focusing on providing a well-rounded education for students. So making sure that they have access to STEM, arts, music, advanced coursework like AP and IB and dual enrollment. So there's a lot of things that can fit under providing a well-rounded instruction for students. The second bucket that these Title IV Part A funds can be used for is around making sure that um, we're supporting safe and healthy school environments. Everything from nutrition to student discipline, to school counseling and mental health, um, how we deal with students who are coming to school with trauma. A lot of different activities there could be part of that um, bucket of funds. And then the third and final bucket is making sure that districts and schools are effectively using technology to improve student learning. So it can help districts that want to implement personalized learning or blended learning approaches that want to you know, make sure that students are ready for the digital world that they are, that we are all living in right now, providing professional development to teachers to help them use technology effectively. Um, and even some of those dollars too can be spent on you know, purchasing iPads or other devices and helping build technology infrastructure in districts. So that's a lot of different uses of funds along those three buckets, but this is a new program. Um, it's over a billion dollars uh, that's been allocated toward it um, for the past two years. And I think there's a lot of excitement around how districts might be able to use those funds, but also have been some questions about um, how to do it and what best practices are just because it's a new program. 
It's really, really helpful to have you explain this for us and for our listeners, because the context and the intention behind this program, given that it's developed over time from the 1960s, is super helpful. And also, I think the thing that we were especially excited to talk to you about today was the ed tech component, because so much of what we're thinking about is educators who are really interested in using educational technology and educators who really care about learning in the 21st century and what that could mean. Why should they care about some of the stuff that's going on in ESSA and these title programs? Absolutely. You know, I think that I was talking about your title four, part A, it's unique in the sense that a lot of the other formula programs are pretty specific about what the funds can be used for. They don't have quite the same amount of flexibility within them as title four. And all of those areas, you know, I mentioned the three, we have well-rounded education and safe and healthy students, as well as effective use of technology. There are opportunities to integrate technology and integrate best practices and professional development for teachers within all of that. So I think that even though it might sound like, oh, well, that second bucket is really about, you know, safe and healthy schools. There's nothing in there that's relevant for teachers. I don't think that's um, that's a bit of a misnomer. You know, creating a supportive environment for students will involve a lot of professional development for teachers. You know, if your district is going to be implementing maybe a new uh, positive behavioral and intervention you know support PBIS is very uh, popular strategy. Professional development to implement that well could be supported with these new title funds. The federal funds are a small part of the overall funding pie; only about ten percent of what schools are spending comes from the federal government. But these are critical dollars. I think they can help amplify and expand existing programs that states and districts are already doing. And because there was a lot of energy and excitement after ESSA passed, and all states and districts had to come to the table, consult with stakeholders, including teachers about, you know, how are we going to implement this new law? How are we going to spend this money? It was a real um opportunity in a moment in time where people came together to you know, figure out what their priorities should be. I hope those conversations included educators, but they should still be ongoing. So I think it can really jumpstart and amplify a lot of the work that districts were already doing to support educators um, and to lift up you know, what they're hearing directly from teacher leaders and instructional leaders in schools to address the problems they're identifying. All of these programs Pretty much all of them require, you know, this plan that's based on a needs assessment. So if you're going to get Title IV funds and you're encouraged to do a needs assessment and districts that get larger amounts of funds under Title IV have to do a needs assessment, well, who should you consult when you're doing that needs assessment? You should absolutely consult the teachers who are on the front lines and know better than anyone what challenges their students are facing. Of course, as a teacher myself, I'm happy to hear you say that. It's always so interesting for me to learn more about policy level things that come down the pipeline. And I honestly, I always feel so in the dark about it. I'm someone who started my teaching career in the no child left behind years. It always felt like stuff that was way above my head that was kind of just happening to my district and to my school. So for me, it's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about kind of who is responsible for engaging in these conversations and all of that. What would you want teachers to know so that they could start these conversations moving forward? Sure. Yeah, I think it's a challenge for uh, I think teachers to feel like their voices are being heard and to even know how to navigate the process. It's all very bureaucratic often. And I think a lot of times um, we're all guilty of this. Um, I used to work at the U.S. Department of Education. So, you know, have some experience working in a big bureaucracy for sure of just 
kind of going through the motions and trying to check the boxes and not doing authentic engagement with teachers, with school leaders is challenging. You can't see me nodding right now, but I am. Yeah, it, it requires, you know, uh, some really forethought and planning and figuring out you know, how we're going to set up a process to make sure this happens and isn't just a one-off, but actually is something that's happening all along the way. So I think one thing to keep in mind with some of these new federal funds is that districts have to have a plan for how they're going to submit or how they're going to um, implement and use all of the new federal funds in ESSA. They submit that plan to their state for approval in order to get the funds. So there's a real opportunity, I think, as districts are planning um, and thinking about how are we going to use our federal funds this year for teachers to be part of that process. Here at the Alliance, um, we work with a coalition of districts that are called Future Ready Schools. And a lot of the districts that participate in Future Ready, which is mostly focused on personalized learning and um, using technology to improve instruction. So not maybe everything within that Title IV bucket, but a big chunk of what's in that Title IV program. When uh, districts are coming together, they create, you know, a lot of them create leadership teams that aren't just the central office bureaucrats, but are actually include teachers and include librarians and include school principals so that there's a process for when we're planning how we're going to implement, you know, technology-based programming and personalized learning for all students and building up our, you know, technology savvy, essentially, as a district so that all students will be future-ready they're not just talking to the folks in the central office, they're actually hearing from schools. So I think that's one of the things that we have heard that's been effective with, um, most effective with the Title IV process is when states and districts in particular have created broader groups of individuals that are kind of a, a steering committee or leadership team so that every year they can evaluate, well, what, sh- what are our needs? What can we spend these funds on? What should we spend these funds on based on the needs and based on evidence of what works? And then evaluate that process every year. So even in the case where I think teachers may have felt like, well, I didn't even know any of this was happening. I didn't know that we had an ESSA plan at my district. It doesn't mean that you missed the boat because this is an ongoing process. These funds come down to districts every year. So I think there are opportunities to set up, you know, whether it's through a steering committee or maybe having, you know, we've heard about states that have a teacher's cabinet where you know, the chief state school officer who's running the entire state agency has a group of 10 or 20 teachers that they meet with regularly and that they consult with when they're developing policy ideas. So you know, it's not too late for those things to start happening and for teachers to start asking for a seat at the table. It's really interesting to hear you say that because I think a lot of teachers, like you just said, would think, oh, this isn't really me or this isn't for me. And so I guess like many things, the more informed you are, the more you can leverage what can work for you in this resource and these funds. Does it seem like the recommendation is to seek more teacher input? And do you know of any examples of states or districts that are doing this really well? Is there anyone who's doing a really good job? bringing in educators' voices in this conversation? I think there definitely have been some state leaders, for sure, in this space. I will say a lot of the examples that I know best aren't particularly related to technology or personalized learning, but it doesn't mean that a similar structure couldn't be used specifically around priorities in that area. 
So one great example, I think, is the state of Louisiana. They have had, you know, a chief in place for a long time. He's been their, their state leader for longer than any other state in the country. So I think that that has helped establish some of these practices and norms and new teacher voice groups over time. But every year they do a teacher leader summit. I think last year they had over 6,000 or 7,000 teachers come in the summer. So it's a huge professional learning opportunity for all teachers in the state to get professional development around key state priorities to hear directly from leaders at the state agency about key policy initiatives. You know, they talked a lot about ESSA, I think, and changes that were coming to their accountability system or to testing or to professional development as part of that. They also, though, have not just the teacher leaders, but they have sort of a select group of teacher leaders who have played an even bigger role in some of the state's biggest policy priorities. One of the things that Louisiana did and used their teacher leaders to do is to look at curriculum and instructional materials that districts were using and that were widely available and developing rubrics. So the teachers actually looked at each curriculum or each set of instructional materials against this rubric to see if it was aligned to the state standards. And they found, particularly in English language arts, that not many of the curricula that were out there were well aligned. So what did they do? They then turned to these teacher leaders to help develop and write a curriculum that they made, uh, the state has now made available free of charge to all districts that is more aligned to their standards. So it's based directly on, you know, these teachers who, who knows better than classroom teachers, whether the materials are actually aligned to the standards and then empowered them to write the curriculum. And now that, you know, they have dozens of districts in the states that are using this curriculum. Um, So that's, I think, a really great example of how, you know, they're reaching all teachers through this big summit and making sure that there's lots of engagement and feedback there. But then they also kind of have this master teacher leader core that has really been integrated into some of their biggest um, projects to improve teaching and learning over time. That's a really good example because it shows if at its essence, ESSA is about helping districts and states solve the problems that they encounter, who better than the educators to know those needs and to identify those needs and then also to be the ones solving the problems that they've encountered through like a facilitated situation like this where everyone can kind of contribute to the solving of the problem. That's a really interesting point also with the English curriculum and I'm obviously super intrigued by that as an English teacher myself. I think a lot of people who are listening to this might not feel like they're invited to the conversation and it sounds really like what you're saying is a piece of this is self-advocacy. Like, what are the ways that you can identify to step up for yourself as a person who can offer this perspective? If your district isn't already forming these teacher leader committees, is your recommendation for teachers to seek out the ways that they can offer their input? I think so. And I understand that, you know, maybe not every educator or teacher out there wants to play that role. And that's fine. We all lead very busy lives. But I think if teachers are feeling like, you know, my voice isn't being heard, I really would like to have input into some of the policies that are out there. You know, there are some outside organizations that have formed to kind of help bring teachers together who feel similarly and want to have um, more of a voice in making policy decisions and big decisions about programming and practice that are happening at their at their district or state level. There are organizations like Teach Plus, which has local chapters in a lot of states around the country, or Educators for Excellence is another. Um, 
if those don't exist in your state or district, you could try to start one um, and reach out to them and see if there might be interest there. I think there are also, though, just ways that teachers can be engaged regularly by going to their local school board meetings or to their state board of education meetings and testifying on things that they care about. That does take effort, but making those engagements and showing yourself as an engaged teacher who has real opinions. And, you know, I think that's a way too, that you can kind of form networks, you know, with other teachers that might feel similar. Like if you go to that meeting, you might identify another teacher who's there who feels the same way. And then you can sort of start informally to network and work from there. It's also, I think, just helpful to go at all of those types of meetings. There certainly were a lot around ESSA as these debates were going on. They had a lot of stakeholder engagement meetings. One of the things that I think just uh, the benefits of showing up is that then you start to see like, well, who are the people at my district that are actually doing this work? And meeting them face to face, you know, a lot of times it may not be the district superintendent or the assistant superintendent. It's like a layer below that. So just figuring out who are the key people to talk to, who actually is leading the strategy behind this, and then who is really doing the work at the district level. I think that's certainly something to help teachers kind of navigate this process. I think part of the challenge is just figuring out who who is the right person to contact. Yeah, identifying who those key players are and thinking about if you want to be one of them. That's a really interesting thought. And even as we're talking about this now, yeah, as a teacher myself, and I'm sure so many other classroom teachers are, I can think of dozens of resources or curriculum elements or actual concrete things that I would want to have in my classroom. And if there were funding for them, and if you told me to ask for it, I would absolutely ask for it. How much room is there for creativity to think about how we use these funds? Are there any sort of boundaries for compliance in this? Is there anything that's not allowed? Are people thinking as big as they possibly could with how these funds are being used currently? Yeah, so I will. I did sort of lead off with saying these are more flexible funds than most federal programs. It doesn't mean that there are no limits, though, on what districts can do. And part of what the limits are depends on how big your school district is. That's because there's um, a provision in ESSA that says districts that receive $30,000 or more a year in Title IV funds, have to spend the money in certain ways. So those districts that get a bigger award have to spend at least 20% of their money on well-rounded education, at least 20% of the money on that supporting safe and healthy students pot of funds, and then at least some of their money on effective use of technology. There isn't a set percentage, so it could be up to 60%, but it has to be at least a portion of funds. So that is a requirement for the districts that get bigger awards. I will say, though, that I think about two-thirds of districts get less than $30,000 a year. So it's not a huge pot of funds. It's, it's real money, but not huge. So I think for the districts that get those smaller awards, they can put the entire grant toward effective use of technology or toward supporting uh, well-rounded education. They don't have to think about those percentages. The other thing, too, I think um, I sort of alluded to, those three buckets, there's a lot of overlap between them. I think there are, you might think, well, what what is there to do with technology and supporting well-rounded instruction? Well, what if you did online professional development for teachers in science, technology, engineering, and math? Like that probably could be called supporting well-rounded education. And there is an online uh, technology component to it as well. Yeah. It's cool that these buckets are nice and broad. Right. Yeah. The other, I think, caveat on 
these dollars, as well as most federal funds, is a provision called supplement, not supplant. So the whole idea, as I said, you know, the federal government is only providing about 10% of, on average, of all the money that we spend on education. Most of the money comes from state and local sources. And federal funds are really supposed to be on top of that, you know, to make sure that um, we're evening out some of the inequities that we know exist and that we're really you know, targeting more funds on the students who need them most. So there's this provision called Supplement Not Supplant that is essentially meant to say the Title IV funds or the Title II dollars that I talked about for teachers and school leaders are not supplanting state and local funds, but they're being added on top of them. So that's just a key provision to keep in mind. And I think with, within that, though, there's still a lot of flexibility for um, districts to use these funds in a whole lot of different ways. I think on the whole, the answer, particularly in Title IV of, can we use our federal funds to do this? The, the answer will be yes, as long as you're not supplanting. So I think a lot of times the assumption is, oh, no, we can't do that. That's not how we've used these funds before. We usually do this with them. Like I think those are probably mostly excuses because just how flexible this grant is, there are probably almost limitless uses of funds under it. And so I do think that even though the dollar amounts are not that big, it is an opportunity for states and districts to think outside the box. And I'm not always sure they're doing that. I think a lot of the times there is a it's just easier to say, oh, we'll spend these funds how we've always spent them, or we'll continue an old program rather than necessarily thinking about something new to do with them. I got excited when you said that, and it also made me wonder if anyone has surprised you in their approach to how they use these funds. So that is an excellent question, and unfortunately not one I can answer very well. Part of the challenge with this being a new program is that there really are only one or two years that we've even been implementing it thus far. But I will say one of the things that we're excited about and that we've seen are some of the ways that states are, and districts in particular, are setting up the process to emphasize really good needs assessment and really emphasizing evidence-based practices. You know, I think, there, for example, like in Nevada, one state that we've done work with, they've really, throughout all of their ESSA title programs, have been trying to emphasize and encourage districts to use their funds, not just on the same old, same old things that have they've always done, whether or not they work, but on uh, interventions and on programs that are backed by research, that implementing those programs well will improve student achievement and improve student outcomes. And so I think that that's really exciting. They, they've been putting out not just Nevada, but a lot of sort of outside groups and other experts and researchers have been trying to put together examples of what evidence-based practices are and so that it's easier for districts to identify those programs and then potentially select them over other interventions or supports that haven't worked as well. That's really awesome. And thank you so much for helping us get a better understanding of ESSA. It's really cool to hear your excitement about it. And we're really excited to communicate this with all of the SD community. Thanks. Yeah, I'm uh, always happy to talk. And as I said, it's early days of implementation. We don't have a whole lot of proof points yet, but I'm optimistic that there will definitely be some good examples coming out of ESSA implementation from those leading states and districts that are maybe using this as an opportunity to do things a little bit differently, um, you know, bring in some teachers to actually tell them <laughs> how they should be doing things <laughs> as 
as opposed to just doing the same old, same old. Um, yeah, so I'm happy to engage anytime. Yeah, and the more informed everyone is, the bigger the possibilities will be. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Anne. Thanks, Amal. Hey, Amal. Hey, Zach. You may not remember, but this episode of Your EdTech Questions is brought to folks by ISTE membership. I do remember. You do remember. Okay, good. I do, yeah. For a limited time, members can access a three-month trial of Nearpod Gold Edition, along with a $100 voucher to spend on digital lessons. That's an awesome resource. I think so. I mean, Nearpod offers a large library of award-winning lesson plans. I don't know which awards, but I'm, I'm guessing pretty good ones. They won them. They, they did win them. It's not like they were just given. And they're all searchable by topic and grade level. You know, want to guess where they can go? Can I find it also at isti.org slash membership? Oh, you nailed it. Yes. I'm going to make a joke. Are you ready? Yeah. Wonk, wonk. You know what that was? No. That was us in wonky policy land. Oh, my gosh. I, yeah. This is why I love you. Oh, I was going to, I was worried you were going to end that sentence differently. So um, <laughs> Amal, um, what did you think about our conversation with Anne? I really enjoyed our conversation with Anne. I enjoyed being part of the conversation with Anne. What did you take away from it? Well, it's one of my favorite things that she talked about was how much of educational policy is about communication. And, you know, like I said earlier, I so often feel like as a teacher, all of this is happening above me and beyond me and not really including me. And one of the things that Anne really brought to light was that teachers and educators at the classroom level and at the school level should really be stepping up to find a way to include their voices in the conversation. And on the flip side of that, since so much of the funding goes directly to districts to allocate, that it's up to districts also to invite more voices to those conversations and to get that feedback. Because that's what really makes it powerful is that those conversations are happening where educators are getting what they need um, by being able to express what they need. So did you feel like from that conversation, you've got kind of a new idea of the, the channels you can take to be a part of that conversation? Yeah, it's. I mean, I think some of it is about organizing and some of it is about communicating and some of it is about, um, you know, thinking first about what are the things that I need and what are the things that I want or wish I had in my classroom that would make the teaching and learning here more effective and how can I get creative about what I want to ask for and what I want to seek. Awesome. And, and for me, I would say that my big takeaway um, or piece of the answer there was around the idea of creativity and that there is more space maybe in this rewriting of these laws um, and these programs for us to try some bigger ideas, right? That it's not yeah. keep, here's, keep doing the stuff you've been doing, but how can we really think big about our, our best ideas uh, around education? It's really asking us to, to step up and ask these questions and be part of these conversations Would in ways say, that maybe people haven't felt. Putting the invited. ownership in the hands of educators? There it is. The ownership in the hands of educators. It's a tough word. Um, so, Amal, would you say that we have turned this question, EdTech question into an EdTech answer? I really think we have. It was great to talk to Anne. So thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Your EdTech Questions. I'm Zach Chase at MR Chase on Twitter. And I'm Amal Gickness at Hello Homeroom. 
And you can ask your EdTech questions with the hashtag your EdTech questions and uh, shoot those at ISTE, I-S-T-E. Thanks so much for listening. We will talk to you next time. Bye. 